Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with someone from Policy Matters Ohio about the state's economy. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS10TV, Tracy Townsend provides an update on the bribery scandal in the state legislature. The special election coming up Tuesday for a congressional seat in central Ohio and the story of a woman from Union County who spent more than a week in a coma from the coronavirus. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Dr. Parker Houston from Nationwide Children's Hospital about their On Our Sleeves program. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Michael Shields, who is a researcher with Policy Matters Ohio. How are you? Doing great. Uh, Glad to be here, Dave. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, Tell us in a nutshell what Policy Matters Ohio is. Policy Matters Ohio is a research and policy organization. We work to uh, create a a more equitable Ohio economy, a place where everybody can thrive. Okay. And is it safe to say that it is uh, liberal-leaning or left-leaning? Yes. Okay. And uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the the latest jobs report from the state of Ohio. Ohio's unemployment rate checking in at 5.2% in June, up from 5% in May. What are your thoughts about what Ohio's economy is doing? So when we see the unemployment rate start to tick up a little bit like that in a recovery, um, that's actually fairly normal. Um, What we have and and what we saw uh, this past month in Ohio is more people coming back into the workforce than uh, finding jobs. And that's that's really not uncommon. It's it's a good sign that we are in recovery. Uh, For June, we had 29,000 Ohioans re-enter the workforce, uh, and 17,000 of them found jobs. So that was uh, the, the reason that we saw a little bit higher unemployment rate. Uh, but we are seeing some recovery, and, and Ohio is uh, trailing just a little bit behind the U.S. in that respect. Um, so that's, that's a good sign. When we say that people are re-entering the workforce or workplace, how do we know that, and, and how, how is it officially logged? Sure. So the numbers that we reported out um, for June, uh, uh, from two separate surveys, one is a survey of uh, business establishments, and the other is a survey of households. So the the folks who are re-entering the the labor force, um, we we see that from the survey of households. Uh, that's also the the place where we get our official unemployment rate. Okay. So how is uh, Ohio doing as far as recovery from the pandemic compared to other states or the nation as a whole? Ohio's just a little bit behind uh, the U.S. In, in terms of the number of jobs that we have regained. Uh, we have about 94.8% of the jobs that we had in February of 2020. The U.S. has about 95.6% of the jobs that it had lost. Now, of course, that also means that we've missed out on the opportunity uh, to, to have job growth that we would have seen um, outside of the context of, of COVID. But we still have a long way to go. Ohio is about 289,000 uh, fewer jobs than it had in February of 2020. Um, and this this is the newest data uh, that came out as of June. And we're hearing about shortages, staff shortages in restaurants and bars and, and other uh, places of employment as well. Uh, how legitimate is that and how big of a deal is it? Well, you know, I still think we have a long way to go to recover the, the number of jobs that we're missing from Ohio. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical that we're really uh, looking at a labor shortage uh, right now. So the Economic Policy Institute uh, traces this and looks at the job openings and labor turnover survey along with uh, the, the number of unemployed folks nationwide. Unfortunately, we do have to look to the, the national level to get the data on this. Um, and for a long time, um, the number of unemployed folks has far exceeded 
the number of job openings that are out there. Now, those are, are starting to match up. Um, so that's great. We're, we're starting to see more hiring. We're starting to see uh, that gap uh, really closing just as of uh, this, this most recent uh, month. And they, they do a three-month uh, running average. Um, so that, that part is good news. Um, but the fact is we still have in many industries, and, and including the restaurant industry, uh, fewer jobs available, at least nationally, uh, than we have um, folks who have, have worked in those industries and are out uh, actively seeking work. Um, and, and we still have a big gap um, in Ohio uh, to, to recover the number of jobs that we've lost, um, both in total. Again, uh, we're about 289,000 jobs uh, fewer than we were in February of 2020. When we look at accommodation and food services, that um, shortfall is about 68,000. So we do still have uh, quite a ways to, to recovery. Um, and, and I think, unfortunately, we're still um, you know, not looking at the, the number of jobs available that we had prior to COVID-19. John Barker, who heads the Ohio Restaurant Association, uh, said to me uh, in the last couple of weeks that he felt that Ohio had lost about 3,000 restaurants during the pandemic. And, you know, if there were only 20 employees per business, you know, that would be, what, 60,000 workers right there. It'd be a, a significant percentage of the people that aren't back to work. It would. Um, and I, I don't have a figure for the number of uh, restaurants in Ohio. Um, you know, I, I simply have the, the jobs figure, and it's a big shortage. He's been one of those who was in favor of Governor DeWine ending the $300 federal subsidy for unemployment benefits, which he did do. But there are a lot of people who also say that that is not what was holding people back from getting a job. What is your take on that? I think that that was a grave mistake. Um, You know, foregoing those unemployment benefits from the federal government is going to be, uh, it's going to create a crisis for a lot of folks whose jobs have been destroyed by COVID-19. But also it's going to cost Ohio about a billion dollars um, in lost federal benefits that would have been spent uh, by, by folks who are out of work um, and, of course, for that reason, have, have had to cut back their spending. Um, you know, the unemployment benefits that, that have been flowing to, to people who've lost their jobs under COVID-19 are also consumer spending, and that's revenue that businesses depend on. Um, in, in foregoing the $300 per week federal benefits, Governor DeWine has uh, decided that Ohio will miss out on a billion dollars in federal benefits, and that's a billion dollars in lost revenue for businesses as well. It's going to slow down our recovery. Talking with Michael Shields, he's a researcher for Policy Matters Ohio. This is a little bit off maybe the, the main path that we were talking about, but when it comes to unemployment, you know, it's interesting. The pandemic has certainly shown the importance of that safety net. And yet for years, legislators in Ohio have been, uh, Republicans have been trying to cut back on unemployment benefits in terms of the number of weeks eligible, or maybe even the cap on the amount per week. And it seems like given the $300 supplement and before that, the $600 supplement, if they continue to try to go the other way, there might be more pushback on that. That's right. And, you know, um, Ohio's recovery, it's really encouraging to see um, that we added uh, about 31,000 jobs in June. Unfortunately, for six months prior to that, we had seen flat uh, job growth. We, we were not adding any jobs since November. Um, you know, I, I think that, you, you know, we're, we're recovering from a, a recession caused by the, the pandemic. It's not policymakers' fault, of course, that, that we've had these job losses. But I think the, the lesson is we really have a, a long ways to go uh, 
to achieve a, a full recovery and that we need to continue to invest in people and invest the dollars that we have in recovery. Uh, you know, the American Rescue Plan Act has sent uh, $11 billion in flexible funding to Ohio, uh, the state and local governments. Uh, Governor DeWine has decided that $1.5 billion of that will go to bail out the unemployment trust fund that, that you've mentioned, uh, which unfortunately Ohio has underfunded for many years. You know, not every state um, had its, its unemployment uh, trust fund go bankrupt and, and had to uh, borrow from the federal government as Ohio did. Um, but Ohio has not adequately funded our unemployment uh, fund for many years. And I, I hope that, uh, you know, coming through uh, this crisis, this is a, an opportunity to, to look at that and, and to start um, adequately funding it. Um, unfortunately, you know, having directed a one, one and a half billion dollars of our ARPA dollars uh, to that. You know, those are uh, revenues that we're not going to have to invest um, in communities, in people, in infrastructure, um, in hiring. Um, so that I think is quite unfortunate. But um, I, I do hope that uh, after this, we we start to to invest in uh, funding our our uh, unemployment trust fund um, at an adequate level. There's uh, 5.3 million Ohioans working right now. When we look at Ohio's workforce or the country's workforce, it seems like there's a big shift going on. I mean, there are more boomers retiring right now than were expected. And uh, it it seems like there's a lot of questions about what's going to happen in the next year or so with the workforce. I think that's right. You know, I I don't uh, think that the the story has really played out in terms of the, the long-term impact uh, that this is going to have on the makeup of the workforce. Um, you know, we, we know, for instance, that in this recession, which was unusual, um, more women have been uh, impacted. Uh, both uh, have, have uh, become unemployed when their employers uh, closed their doors or, or, or reduced operations, and also more women had to leave the workforce or reduce their hours themselves um, in taking on new uh, child caregiving responsibilities or uh, caring for uh, other loved ones who had become sick um, from COVID-19. So uh, we know that there, there are some unusual things going on in the workforce right now. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, going to be uh, interesting to see how it plays out, but I, I think uh, one thing to, to really bear in mind is that there there are a lot of things that we need to address to make sure that uh, we can get a full recovery. Um, in particular, when we're talking about women um, who've, who've had challenges um, getting back to work, um, I, I think there are a lot of investments that we need to make in child care to make that feasible. Michael Shields, a researcher with Policy Matters Ohio, just a couple of minutes to go here. You know, when you think about the pandemic and how it seems to have changed people's minds about the workplace and whether they work from home or in the office and boomers retiring early. One of the things I'm thinking might be whether it's a a fear of their own health in public or just the idea that another year of work isn't necessarily going to create a huge difference in their overall savings for retirement. And if they do decide to leave early, there are so many of these delivery jobs and other type of niche jobs available now that they could just do that on the side to make up the difference. Yes. Um, and, you know, I haven't done any research on uh, the incidence of early retirement, but uh, I, I do know that the, the stock market has recovered um, much more rapidly than the jobs market has. Um, you know, it, it could be that folks are, um, you know, seeing that their, their retirement uh, nest egg feels a, a, a little bit more um, secure. And uh, we, we know that a lot of folks have been displaced from work and, and still have not been able to make it back into the workforce. That's a little bit speculative on my part because um, I don't have uh, you know specific figures on that. Right. 
So as the economy continues to recover, the pandemic, the, the Delta variants coming back a little bit, what are your thoughts about the economy going forward? I know you're not a prognosticator necessarily in that sense, but what's your gut feeling? lost. You know, I think that uh, having a safe place to, to go back to work is one major factor. Um, you, you talked about the, the restaurant industry. Um, one of the things that we know uh, from surveys from folks who work in that industry is that um, they're, they're facing new challenges um, in this role. Um, you know, folks uh, experienced uh, new workplace safety concerns that, that um, you know, weren't necessarily something that they bargained for um, when uh, they took jobs uh, as uh, waiters and, and waitresses, um, be it uh, you know exposure to, to COVID-19 at work. Um, we know that uh, folks have reported uh, dealing with new customer hostility um, as, as they've been put in a role of having to uh, enforce public health mandates. Um, and, and also folks have, have reported uh, reduced tips in that industry. So, you know, um, I think that the, the workplace safety issue is going to remain a, a key concern. Um, you know, right now we have a, around half of Ohioans vaccinated. Um, not everyone has had an opportunity to, to be vaccinated yet. And of course, um, you know, some folks are, are not able to um, for health reasons. Um, and I know that there are some concerns um, about that as well um, with uh, whether people are, are going into a safe workplace where uh, the majority of folks that they encounter are uh, have either been fully vaccinated or um, are, you know, continuing to, to wear masks and take other, uh, other safety precautions. It's so interesting. Everything's getting more and more tangled, you know, because now wearing masks, wages, child care, worker rights, I mean, there's, there's so many issues now that are clogged with politics that have been fueled by this pandemic. Well, I think that's right. You know, and, and um, I, I think that Public policy has always had a, a major role in uh, shaping the quality of jobs that uh, folks have access to. Um, I think in, in many respects, you know, this crisis has just uh, brought that into a, a sharper focus. Michael Shields, researcher at Policy Matters Ohio. Anything else you'd like to add? Sure. Um, check us out at policymattersohio.org. Um, I think because we've mostly talked about the job recovery, let, let me add this. Um, you know, we are on the right track. Um, Ohio's jobs recovery is just a little bit behind the nation's. I think that this is a case of smart federal policy prevailing over missteps that have been made by state policymakers. Um, the federal government has given us unprecedented fiscal stimulus. Um, unfortunately, Ohio uh, has, in, in some cases, taken the opposite tack. Uh, policymakers avoided tapping into our rainy day fund. Uh, they froze hiring. They said no thanks to a billion dollars in uh, federal unemployment benefits, and they've used a billion and a half of the American Rescue Plan dollars um, that, that Ohio has received um, to, to backfill the unemployment trust fund that we've left under, underfunded for a long time. Uh, so this is a time to really invest in people. These are dollars that we need to invest in our uh, communities. Uh, and. and um, Spending that um, fiscal stimulus in, in ways that drives growth um, is the, the way that, uh, that we can achieve an equitable recovery that includes everybody. And another thing along that line that I know that Policy Matters Ohio has taken a stand on in the past is that state income tax cut that Republicans have been doing for years that they say helps Ohio's economy, helps stimulate it. And folks on your side have said for years that that's mainly a giveaway to Ohio's wealthy. Ohio's tax structure is upside down. You know, the the lowest paid Ohioans 
uh, pay a larger share of their income uh, than the wealthiest. Um, and, and unfortunately, the system also starves us of revenue that we need to invest in, in public infrastructure. Um, so, you know, the, the tax cuts that we've had have been, as you say, uh, going on for a long time. Uh, it really is time to reverse that uh, and, and start to uh, raise the revenue that we need to invest um, in our shared resources and invest in people. Michael Shields, again, researcher for Policy Matters Ohio. Very interesting. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. Sure appreciate it. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Energy will pay nearly a quarter of a billion dollars in connection with what's been called the largest corruption scandal in Ohio history. The corporation is charged with conspiracy, but the charge will likely be dismissed. We certainly thank you for joining us for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. This is a complicated saga, but the latest chapter pretty much boils down to this. First Energy is admitting that it conspired with public officials to pay millions of dollars in exchange for a specific action from public officials. That action appears to be the passage of House Bill 6. The bill bailed out First Energy's nuclear power plants. But here's the thing. The charges likely won't stick because of the type of deal that was signed. It's called a deferred prosecution settlement. First Energy has to pay the cash and cooperate with the government. 10TV's Kevin Landers has more. First Energy is admitting to its culpability. For the first time, prosecutors allege the energy company behind the House Bill 6 scandal is admitting its role in the largest bribery case in Ohio history. First Energy agreed to a $230 million fine. Let me give you some perspective. That's the largest criminal penalty ever collected, as far as anyone can recall, in the history of this office. First Energy is charged with conspiracy to commit honest services fraud. Federal authorities say First Energy and affiliate Generation Now funneled a total of $60 million to former Speaker Larry Householder, which Householder secretly controlled. HB6, which Householder helped pass, created a taxpayer bailout for two failing nuclear power plants. Public corruption is intolerable. It destroys, then this erode, it destroys the public trust. Until now, much of the scandal has focused on Householder, who has pled not guilty in the case. Another name surfaced. While the government didn't name Sam Randazzo by name, it's clear that's who they were talking about, alleging he accepted $4.3 million from First Energy. Randazzo was appointed by Governor Mike DeWine. And are you confident that your office is in any way involved? 
Yeah, I'm certainly certainly confident. Uh, I know what I did and what I didn't do. DeWine's challenger for governor, Nan Whaley. This is going to the top levels of our state government, and it is time for Mike DeWine to say what he knew and when he knew it. The only thing we really see is, you know, self-interest and self-dealings being taken care of at the state house, and it's got to stop. Reporting from the state house, Kevin Landers, 10TV News. After Kevin's interview, the governor's team announced that he will make a monetary donation to the Boys and Girls Clubs in the amount First Energy contributed to the campaign committee. First Energy says they are also looking at political activity as a whole. Early voting continues in the primary election to fill the seat representing Ohio's 15th congressional district in the U.S. House. The primary is August 3rd, then the general election is in November. There's a crowd of competitors on the Republican side with 11 people running for the nomination. There are two Democrats running. This week, you'll hear from two candidates, one Democrat and one Republican. Last year, America used 3.5 trillion sheets of toilet paper while $3 trillion were printed to cover the federal budget deficit. Spending dollar bills like sheets of toilet paper is what Democrats do best. Well, you've probably seen the commercials for Tom Wong that he and his campaign staff are create. They do this on their own. Wong prides himself on being a small business owner and not a politician. He told me in our interview that voters are not looking for another typical politician. I, I feel that I'm, people are looking for something new. They do not want to see another politician. Um, our polit- political leadership has in large degree failed us, I believe. We failed with the Larry Householder scandal. We fail, failed with the House Bill 6 scandal. We failed with keeping inflation under control. We failed with useless spending. And uh, I'm, I'm from outside the system, and I think that qualifies me better than those who are inside the system to, um, to, to fix that. We also spoke recently with Republican candidate Jeff LeRae, and you can find that interview at 10tv.com slash face the state. Democrat Allison Russo is a second term state representative who told me that running for Congress is an opportunity to be a voice for working people in the nation's capital. I have a a history in the State House of working across the aisle. Um, I'm very proud of of the work that I do and working with my colleagues and finding consensus. Uh, I've emerged as a a trusted voice from colleagues on both sides of the aisle on some very tough issues. And as someone who uh, is willing to sit down and have the conversations, uh, find common ground, uh, I don't plan to change how I operate when I get to Washington. Uh, That is what my constituents have asked of me. Uh, That is what I think is the most effective way to get the job done and frankly, more of what's needed in Washington. And I plan to continue to do that. You can find a voter's guide right now at 10tv.com. From Congressional District 15 to District 4, represented by Congressman Jim Jordan. Jordan was one of two lawmakers House Speaker Nancy Pelosi blocked from the panel being established to look into the insurrection on January 6th. Pelosi says she's concerned about the congressman's comments and actions. Bipartisan, nonpartisan. It's about seeking the truth, and that's what we owe the American people. Both Jordan and the other congressman, Jim Banks of Indiana, are outspoken allies of former President President Trump. Jordan says he thinks it's political retribution. So they don't want to talk about that stuff. They just want to be partisan. They just want to continue to attack the former president. They want to play their political game. So I applaud Leader McCarthy 
for saying we're going to do our job. We're going to continue to work and get to the bottom and answer the questions that the leader raised, the questions that, frankly, the American people want answers. And Leader McCarthy has said he will pull all five of the Republicans he selected to serve if House Speaker Pelosi does not reverse her decision. Air Force One in Ohio. Coming up, the president's stop in the Buckeye State and what he revealed about the CDC and COVID-19 vaccines for children under 12. I never dreamed at my age that something like that would happen to me. Initially, she did not get the vaccine because she worried about side effects. But what happened instead was far worse than feeling a little under the weather. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Alpha, Delta, and now Lambda. When it comes to different variants of COVID-19, here's what you need to know. Dr. Joseph Gastaldo of Ohio Health says people should continue to get the vaccine if they haven't already, saying we are seeing more COVID in under-vaccinated areas. The infectious disease specialist says that he worries these numbers will continue to climb as we reach fall and then winter. As for that new Lambda variant identified in Texas, Dr. Gastaldo says it's still too early. And it needs to be studied, but he says it's possible that it's already in Ohio. Well, that possibility does exist. The CDC did state recently, however, based on their testing, over 80% of all of the circulating strains of COVID-19 are the Lambda variant. It's the fittest variant. And um, by that statistic, that's probably the likely predominant strain circulating here in Ohio. Dr. Gastaldo says concerning the Lambda strain, health professionals will likely know more about it in a couple of weeks, maybe months ahead. COVID-19 cases do continue to climb in our state. As for vaccines, Ohio hovering just under 50 percent fully vaccinated. 10TV's Angela Reigert talked with a Union County woman who did not get vaccinated. She tells Angela she almost lost her life because of it. I never dreamed at my age that something like that would happen to me. It's not something Amanda Spencer likes to relive, but she feels she needs to. I made a promise to myself then that, you know, I wanted to make sure that, you know, I told as many people as I can um, my story and hopefully to prevent, you know, others from going through it. It was June. She went on a family vacation to Orlando, Florida. We had plans to go to Universal Studios with the children, and I was too sick to go. I just didn't have the energy. Um, I stayed back at the hotel, and that night, um, my breathing got worse. And I went to the bathroom, and I actually could not get out of the bathroom. I was so weak. Amanda ended up in the emergency room where doctors diagnosed her with COVID-19. I don't remember anything until they woke me up and took the ventilator out. For 11 days, the 37-year-old was in a medically induced coma. That was the scariest thing that I've ever went through. You know, the thoughts of leaving my family behind and knowing that I was that close, it, it's terrifying. When she woke up, she realized, 
All of this may have easily been prevented. I do regret that I didn't get vaccinated. What was it? Why, why didn't you want to get it originally? Honestly, I was worried about the side effects. Um, but honestly, after what I've went through, I would have much rather been sick for a couple days and have the mild symptoms that maybe the shot causes than to go through what I went through. What would you say to someone um, who's out there and, you know, maybe he's on the fence and they're, they're unsure? Um, what, what would you say? What would be your advice? It's very important to make sure that you do get the vaccine because it really is life saving, even if it helps one person to not have to go through what I did. You know, it's worth it. Reporting in Columbus, Angela Reigard, 10 TV News. Because she had the virus, Amanda cannot get her shot for a while, but she plans to get one. Both Amanda's husband and her oldest daughter decided to get vaccinated since her scare. If you want to get yours, we have information for you right now at 10tv.com. Columbus City Schools announced that everybody in their schools will have to wear a mask this fall. This includes adults, kids, and anyone who is vaccinated. The district says that they're changing the policy because the vaccines cannot be required due to emergency use authorization. So district leaders cannot ask parents about their kids' status. We asked Dr. Mashika Roberts, who is the Columbus Public Health Commissioner, what percentage of people would need to be vaccinated in order to remove the masks. You know, I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, we've been saying that we'd like herd immunity and we believe herd immunity is going to be somewhere between 70 to 80 percent. Um, but if new variants continue to develop and if our vaccines um, become somewhat resistant to those new variants, I don't know if we can just rely on vaccine rates to make that type of prediction. Students will also be required to wear masks on school bus. Sales of homes that were previously occupied are back up again. That's according to new nationwide numbers for the month of June. A four-month losing streak has ended. Nationally, sales jumped nearly 25% from June of last year. As for Ohio's average sales price, there was an 18% increase from June of 2020. The average is now $256,000. In June of 2020, you may remember some states were still locked down because of COVID-19. Soaring prices and few available homes have really been discouraging would-be buyers. What changed? Experts say strong demand for higher end properties and ultra low mortgage rates helped flip the script. The nation is facing an affordable housing crisis, but people looking for homes here in Columbus and in Franklin County have a voice in the new president of the Affordable Housing Trust. Its board of directors launched a national search and landed on a new president and chief executive officer already on their team in Lark Mallory, who is their current general counsel. She will be the first female to lead the organization, which is 20 years old and started by former Columbus Mayor Michael Coleman. For people who are watching Face the State on Sunday morning and thinking, it's affordable housing, this is not really my lane, what do you say to them? It's everyone's lane. Um, it's obviously an economic development issue. I live in Reynoldsburg and the city just, well, the city is in the process of bringing a new corporation to town from Colorado. One of their biggest things was um, their employees needed affordable housing. 
And what's affordable really depends on your income. What's affordable to the CEO of a large corporation is not necessarily going to be what's affordable um, to the young woman making, you know, coffee at Starbucks. But we need housing across the spectrum. And Lark Mallory will succeed Steve Gladman, who recently announced his retirement as president and CEO. She starts in the new role in late August. This month, a federal judge in Texas ruled that DACA is unlawful. You'll recall DACA is a program that protects undocumented children from deportation. But that raises a question. Are DACA applications no longer being accepted because of the new ruling? Ariane Datil with our Verify team looked into it. According to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, nearly 915,000 people have applied for DACA status since the program was created in 2012 under President Obama. The Deferred Action Childhood Arrivals Program allows people brought to the U.S. as children to live in the country without being deported. It also gives some DACA recipients the ability to work and a Social Security number. While a path to citizenship for DACA recipients has been debated for years, it still does not exist. In 2018, the Texas Attorney General joined nine other states to file a lawsuit claiming former President Obama exceeded his authority when he created DACA through an executive order. And last week, that suit made it to a U.S. District Court judge who ruled DACA is unconstitutional, arguing Obama didn't follow the proper guidelines when creating the program. So what does this ruling mean for people applying for DACA status? Let's verify. Are DACA applications no longer being accepted because of the new ruling? Our sources are the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Texas ruling, the Administrative Procedure Act, Nick Katz, legal director at CASA, and Jose Barrera, state director for the California League of United Latin American Citizens. According to the judge's ruling, the Obama administration didn't meet the condition for public comment required under the Administrative Procedure Act when creating DACA. Because of that, he ruled that DACA is unconstitutional. Under the ruling, the Department of Homeland Security may accept new applications but cannot currently approve them. According to Barrera, that puts more than 50,000 applicants waiting for approval in limbo and still at risk of deportation. You could also be subjected to losing your job because you don't have a working permit. For Honduran immigrant Isabel Aguilar, this ruling has stopped her son Adolfo from being able to accept a job offer. I really feel, you know, frustrated. She says Adolfo, a student at Loyola University in Maryland, was in the final stage of the DACA application process. He was so excited and he said, mommy, you know, they told me in, 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 in August and September, I will receive my permits and in September I can start, you know, to, to work. What this ruling does is just flip-flop us back to a time when, you know, less folks are able to do that. So we can verify it is false that DACA applications are no longer being accepted because of the new ruling. They are being accepted. However, they aren't being approved right now. With your Verify, I'm Ariane Date-Till. Here's a fun fact for you. There has been a human being in space 24-7, 365 for the last 21 years. And many of those astronauts have been from Ohio. 10TV's Bryant Somerville shows us our state's role in the stars. What? A passenger space flight, one for the history books, thanks to Amazon founder Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin rocket. Just nine days ago, billionaire Richard Branson felt zero gravity aboard his own space plane. Why should people care about this? 
people should care about space because space is an integral part of our modern world. John Horak is a professor at OSU's John Glenn College of Public Affairs with a focus on mechanical and aerospace engineering. He also helped to build the Gamma Ray Observatory, a sister ship to the Hubble Space Telescope that launched in April of 1991 and spent 10 years in space. People should care about space like they care about breathing oxygen or or reliable power or clean water. He says the so-called billionaire's space race is doing incredible things. It's a golden age of exploration and a golden age of space travel, and I expect more uh, to come from this. It's allowing us to expand and improve on our reliability in space. It helps us better understand satellite communication and remote sensing for weather. It's also making it safer, saying we are leaps and bounds more prepared now than in the 60s. If we don't learn how to do that reliably and do that safely and repeatedly, uh, you can't integrate it into our civilization and and our well-being and create these positive social and economic and educational and quality of life outcomes for people. And at the forefront of all of this, he says, the state of Ohio. I believe Ohio has contributed more astronauts to NASA than any other single state. From Ohio space stars like Jim Lovell, Catherine Sullivan and Neil Armstrong, to today's. Horak says his former students are now working for Blue Origin, SpaceX, and even NASA. Brian Somerville, 10 TV News. And the professor also credits the many different training and educational facilities across the state as a way to keep our state on the map with space exploration. Well, we certainly thank you for being here with us today. We will see you next week for Face the State. Enjoy your Sunday. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and I'm talking with Dr. Parker Houston. He's a clinical psychologist with Nationwide Children's Hospital. He's also the clinical director of the hospital's On Our Sleeves program. How are you? I'm well. How are you this morning, Dave? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, The On Our Sleeves program, I think most folks in the area have heard of it. It started in, uh, I believe, 2018. Can you tell us what it is? Absolutely. Yeah, we started it in... um October of 2018 as a way to try and break down the stigmas related to children's mental health and conversations about mental health in general. And it's really grown in the past two and a half years or so into not only breaking stigmas and starting conversations, but really providing a lot of evidence-informed resources and activities for people to do to try and improve the mental health and well-being of kids across the country. And with this pandemic going on now, this was uh, a proactive movement that just couldn't have come at a better time, it seems like. Yeah, it's really, it's one of those things where we feel like the, the stars aligned and um, we've gotten a lot of, of increase in need for the services we're providing. But this really predates anything related to COVID. It just so happens that we feel like we're in a, a really good position to try and help out parents, families, kids, teachers, um, with a lot of needed resources right now with all the stress we've all been under. 
And Nationwide Children's Hospital has really been making a name for itself over the years as uh, kind of a research firm as well. And this goes hand in hand with that pretty well, I would think. Yeah, it does. And, you know, really the way that I think of it is there's this really important sort of cyclical way that things are happening at Nationwide and Behavioral Health right now, which is that, um, you know, the, the research arm of the hospital informs a lot of what we do both in prevention but also intervention and and then likewise we're trying to work along with our colleagues who do a lot of the intervention for kids who are having mental health concerns Um, but they're also letting us know you know here are things we wish that you could teach kids in a community or here are things that we think could really work to prevent a specific type of mental health concern and so there's this really fascinating and wonderful way that we're all working together to better the mental health of not only kids here in central Ohio, but when it comes to prevention, we're really focused on every community across the country. And what we really believe here at Nationwide Children's and through On Our Sleeves is that a lot of this information should be much more easily accessible than it is. And the knowledge that we have should be free for everybody. So we're trying to get it out there in usable and digestible pieces and with activities associated so that people can implement it in their own life and in their own family and community. Um, And we're just using a lot of different mechanisms and relationships with other organizations and companies to try and achieve that. And we're going to talk in a moment about the Million Classroom Project, which uh, is that nationwide effort you were talking about. Before we do that, though, Doctor, I did want to ask you about the state of kids today because, you know, this kind of started out with kids being pulled out of the classroom and then the the grand finale of the pandemic year was graduations that were held virtually. And I just can't imagine for older kids a bigger letdown than that. After spending 12 years in school and having the big finish, some kind of a watered-down, almost seemingly unappreciated event like that, it's just got to be an unbelievable blow And that's just the tip of the iceberg of what they've been going through. Yeah, I would say that that is one of a series or a string of changes that people have had to try and adapt to over the past year. And, um, you know, kids, maybe more than others in some regard, have had to adapt to different ways of attending school and different expectations. And um, there's a lot of those sort of once-in-a-lifetime opportunities that kids tend to have and you grow up expecting them you grow up to expect prom or your senior year of basketball or soccer to be a certain way or you know um graduation of course is one college visits is another when you get to be that age and i've heard many many stories of kids and parents having to readjust their expectations and try and make it feel special try and find ways to create um
have some positive emotions even in a time of difficulty and then to be able to cope with those really difficult negative emotions too when they come which they do for all of us and so this year has really been fascinating because under normal circumstances there's a small percentage of the population who maybe on any given day is having a rough day or having to deal with a big change but uh, over the past let's say 12 months just to make it a round number it's been pretty much everybody in pretty much every city across the United States and across the world. And so there are so many people seeking guidance and seeking knowledge about how to try and make it through this time, how to help their kids make it through this time, um, that we've, we've had plenty to talk about over the past year. I guess one positive aspect for kids maybe would be that as you know, society kind of shut down and became a virtual world, they may be uh, better able to handle that transition than a lot of adults because they've grown up with it. Yeah, I've heard so many fascinating stories and wonderful stories about kids figuring out how to use technology to achieve a desired goal, whether it's academic or social. Um, You know, I've heard stories of kids who were in a band together all recording their parts separately on an iPhone and then sending it to each other and having someone put them together into a piece of music. Um, I've heard kids teaching their parents a lot about the technology related to, you know, hosting a meeting for work or being able to connect with family for a holiday or things like that. And so there's, you never want to put the spin on it that something like this is positive, but you can usually take positives away from even really challenging situations. And I would also say that kids and adults over the past year have been forced to learn to be a bit more flexible as, as a group. And, you know, for most of them, this will be one of the most difficult years of their lifetimes. And so you can look back on it and say, if I could make it through that, I could make it through another difficulty that they might face in the future. So there's there's usually ways to sort of look and see how am I going to grow from this situation rather than let it break me down or let it, you know, stop me in my tracks. And that's part of when people hear the term resilience, that's really what resilience means is the ability to, to bounce back in some form after a tragedy or a difficulty or or a learning experience and to to grow from it and to learn things from it. Talking with Dr. Parker Houston, clinical psychologist with Nationwide Children's Hospital and the clinical director of the On Our Sleeves program, you mentioned the national outreach, and you've got something called the Million Classroom Project. What is that? Well, we're really, really excited about the Million Classrooms Project this year. It's our way of trying to put into action everything we've been talking about and all the groups of people that we've been partnering with over the past two years. Um, So basically what we realized is that there's about 4 million elementary and middle school classrooms in the United States. And we've been wanting to focus on educators more explicitly for a while now, given how much difficulty they've faced this year as well. And so um, we came up with the idea that what we're going to do between now and the end of 2021 is we're going to get free on our sleeves resources into at least 1 million of those classrooms by the end of the year. And so we're using a lot of different curricula 
workload that we have, but um, we're basically leveraging all of our relationships across the country to try to promote awareness and encourage access to the, our free library of classroom kits and student activities. So we have partnerships with um, a group called Young Minds Inspired who create teacher curricula for us and they're education experts. So they kind of translate the information that we have on the clinical side into a teacher user guide as well as student activity sheets. And then probably my favorite part of what they do is they have a parent letter that gets sent home as well. And so the parent letter really helps take things from the classroom and generalize it to home. And for many of the kids, they take that letter home and they really want to talk about this with their parents. Guess what I learned today? And that's the best thing that we can think is that we're bridging that gap where kids are taking it into the home and they're starting those conversations and the parents can help continue them. And we're also going to have um, those parent letters translated into Spanish because that's one big challenge for a lot of families across the country is being able to have that in a, a language that is um, easy for them to understand and, and use. Um, and so, you know, teachers can get involved really easily. They just go to our website, onoursleeves.org slash million, and they can download things right from there. It's all free. We can... You can decide, you know, what age you might work with and what type of information you'd like to use in your classroom. But even parents and other citizens can be involved. They can go to that same website on oursleeves.org slash million. You can nominate a teacher or a school to receive a classroom kit, and we'll actually mail them something to the school that has lots of resources in there, and um, they can photocopy it, use it however they want. And we've gotten so much positive feedback from it already, and it's only been a few days since we have launched the program. This is great because teachers are kind of on the front line anyway at recognizing things like abuse in the home, or, or they may be the person that a child reaches out to first. And, and a good teacher, as classrooms return, would naturally be concerned about n not necessarily abuse and things like that, but just mental health in general, depression, anxiety, those types of things that may have developed in kids. Every teacher that I've talked to so far, which is many, many in the past year, every one of them has said, I'm worried about the mental health of the kids that I teach, and what can I do to help them? It's been one of the most common questions from teachers that we've received, and while I can answer everyone individually, this is our way of helping every teacher who might be thinking it but not have a place to turn to get that information, uh, some place to go. It's free, it's informed by scientific evidence, and it's also coming from a reliable resource at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Um, that's who's backing the development of these curriculum. And so um, what we're trying to do is as kids, especially the end of the school year, trying to sort of tie a bow on what's been a really difficult year, but then certainly leading into the fall as teachers are thinking about what's my curricula going to look like next year. It, it changed a lot this year, and now as we're returning to a more stable school year next year, we all hope, what's my curriculum going to look like? Might I integrate more of this into the way that I teach my kids? And if so, who can give me some resources to do that? Because, you know, we, we can't expect teachers to be experts in absolutely everything, even though they seem like it a lot of the time. Um, and so, 
yeah, we're we're just really excited to be able to help teachers out in any way and to help them get this information to kids. And our strong feeling is that the earlier we start with these skills and these discussions, the better it's going to be long-term for kids because they can learn these skills early in life and make them habits and make them routines that will last into adulthood. So even a preschool teacher can use this stuff, and it's really helpful for kids. Talking with Dr. Parker Houston, Nationwide Children's Hospital, the clinical director of the On Our Sleeves program. One of the drivers of this On Our Sleeves program was to deal with stigma of mental health in kids. Can you talk for a moment about what that stigma is and, and how it is perhaps different from uh, from adults with mental illness? Well, there's some important distinctions when it comes to stigma related to children's mental health. The biggest one is, is shame for parents. Um, historically, unfortunately, there were technical diagnoses of mental health conditions that were supposedly caused by poor parenting. And that was a largely held society-held belief for many, many years that children who suffered from a mental health condition, the first place they looked was, well, what are their parents doing to cause this? And although we have much more information now and we realize that that is not very often the case, um, of course, there are difficult circumstances in home lives that many kids come from, but in general, Poor parenting is not the cause of mental health concerns, and so there remains this stigma from parents that if I seek help for my child, it means that in some way I'm not living up to my responsibility as a parent. And that is, shame is one of the biggest deterring factors from someone acting on a a suspicion or a concern uh, that there is. And so what we have to do is we have to try and do two things. First of all, reducing stigma is related to giving people information. And so we try and educate people about the, the origins of mental health concerns and things to look for and ways to seek help from people who are experts in that area and can really help to improve things. But there's also giving parents something positive to do because many parents just, they want to be able to do something to help. And they want to be able to teach their kids how to develop good mental health habits. And so we feel like by offering people these free resources, parents can really feel like they're involved in improving the mental health of their children so that if a mental health concern does come up, they can feel confident seeking guidance that, you know, I've done what I can and I've worked with them and I've tried to teach them and now I need someone to to help us out. I would also say that there's just the general stigma related to mental health, that mental health is somehow a sense of weakness or that it should be handled in the family, even for adults. Many times we hear that, that, well, this should just be handled in the family. We don't need anybody else to to help us with this. Um, And that's just really not the case, uh, that there's lots of great treatment options out there. There's you know, many, many wonderful mental health providers who just want to provide guidance and and help families work through the challenges that they have. So those are the messages that we're trying to send over and over again is that, you know, we can all be proactive in trying to improve mental health and wellness for the population in general, but also that when we do need help, um, 
that it's there and it's not anything to to be concerned about or to feel like it's a, a letdown. Uh, it's actually a pretty brave thing to do to seek that treatment and, and um, try and find some assistance as early as possible. Just a moment or so to go here with Dr. Parker Houston with Nationwide Children's Hospital. You know, I was wondering, couples, when there's one or both members of the couple who tend to clam up when there's a problem between the two and nobody talks about it, and then finally when the subject is finally broached, as soon as the conversation begins, the healing begins. And you can, both sides often will think, we should have just talked about this earlier. It's so easy to talk about it and get it out of the way. And I'm wondering if the discussion of mental illness, either people seeking help and once they start to get that help, how quickly it can improve situations or just the communication within a family to even just begin to talk about it helps. Well, as a, as a provider myself, one of the most common things that I hear from a, a parent of a new patient that I'm seeing for the first time is, I need you to fix my mistakes. You know, they've finally gotten themselves there into the office. They've finally made it in. And that's usually what they say. And I, I wish that that was a rarity, but it's not. Wow. Uh, and so when I provide a different direction and when I talk about it in a different way, the relief that I see on many of their faces, just from knowing that they're not here to be corrected or told what they've done wrong and how they need to fix themselves because they've you know, messed up something with their parenting, that often provides a huge sense of relief just knowing that there are solutions to some of these problems, that they are part of that solution and usually a big part of that solution, and that can give them a sense of empowerment and a sense of self-efficacy and self-determination that they weren't feeling before. And so I totally agree with you that sometimes it's just opening that door and having someone to to bounce these concerns off of and to get some good information back. Uh, And that can make all the difference and turn things in a different direction. Boy, what a powerful thing that is to tell somebody, I'm not here to blame you. I'm here to help you have the tools to make this better. Yeah, we're, we're a team, you know. There's no, no good treatment happens in isolation with a psychologist. And that's a, that's a historically held belief that the psychologist was the main agent of change. And that's just not really true, especially for kids. The psychologist helps with change and helps structure the change. But the real change happens in their day-to-day lives. And who's more important in a child's day-to-day life than their caregivers and their teachers? Those are two of the most important groups for the vast majority of children out there. And so those are the groups that we're reaching out to most often to give them as much information and a sense of, you know, feeling like they know what they're, what they're doing, know what they need to do, and feel more confident. And that's really important. Dr. Parker Houston, clinical psychologist with Nationwide Children's Hospital and the clinical director of the On Our Sleeves program. Tell us again uh, how folks can get involved in this uh, Million Classrooms project. Absolutely. It's really easy. You go to onoursleeves.org slash million, and everything you need is right there. You can download things right from that website, or if you're wanting to nominate somebody else, you can put in a school or a teacher's name in there, and we'll send them something in the mail. Um, you can also donate because we, we worked it out that a dollar gets our stuff into one classroom. So for every dollar that we raise, we can get this information into one classroom across the country. And 
Um, so we, we're looking for support in any way that people want to offer it. Good stuff. Uh, Dr. Houston, uh, thanks so much for your time today, and good luck with this program. Well, thanks so much for having me. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.